Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to The Recount. I'm Rena Ninen, and you're listening to The Recount Daily Pod. America turned 245 years old this weekend, but the dawn of American democracy didn't come in 1776. Harvard professor and author Daniel Ziblatt believes the clock started much later, He now wonders if that watch might stop ticking. Is American democracy on life support? The biggest threat to democracies might not be revolutions or invading armies. So what research has this Harvard professor unearthed? First, your morning headlines. Today's Tuesday, July 6th. Four more bodies were discovered in the collapsed Florida condominium after the remaining portion of the building was demolished on Sunday. There were fears that Tropical Storm Elsa could bring high winds and topple the building under rescue workers. The demolition now opens up new areas that were inaccessible to search. At least 28 bodies have been recovered so far, with 117 still missing. Hackers are demanding $70 million to unlock the businesses they attacked in at least 17 different countries. The group has hit thousands, including small businesses, a grocery chain in Sweden, and even schools in New Zealand. It's being labeled the single biggest global ransomware attack on record. An affiliate of the Russian-linked hacker group Reville claimed credit for last weekend's massive attack. They're demanding $70 million in cryptocurrency to unlock the data they've taken. This attack comes just weeks after President Joe Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin that the United States would use offensive cyber operations unless Russia clamped down on cyber attacks against the U.S. The FBI is investigating the attack. Israel's reporting the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is less effective against the Delta variant. Israel's health ministry says the vaccine is now 64% effective after collecting data over the past month. The previous strain showed a 94% efficacy rate. Pfizer says the Israeli data was, quote, preliminary, yet to be fully assessed. And those are your morning headlines. After our interview, we'll take a look ahead at the stories we'll be watching today. In fact, a democracy thrives when there's disagreement. We need disagreement and heated disagreement in order for democracy to to thrive. But when political rivals begin to regard each other as existential threats where they'll go to extreme measures to prevent the other side from winning, then a democracy is in trouble. And now to our daily deep dive. 
With fireworks and barbecues, Americans across the nation celebrated the 4th of July this past weekend, marking 245 years since the founding of this country, this great experiment of democracy. So we thought it might be a good time to take a deeper look at our institutions of governance and ask if our democracy is in fact healthy and well. Here to help us dig into the issues is Harvard professor and political scientist, Daniel Ziblatt, the co-author of a best-selling book on the topic published in 2018, How Democracies Die. Hey, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. So uh, this book was written, what, four years ago and still has incredible lasting impact. I'm looking at this poll from the Associated Press. Uh, It was done late January, February, and it says just 16% of Americans say that democracy is working well or extremely well. Are you surprised by that number? That's certainly a a shockingly low number, but I think there is broad sentiment in the United States today that our institutions aren't aren't operating as they're supposed to or aren't operating as we imagine they ought to operate. And so in that sense, I'm I'm not that surprised, I have to say. Mm. When you look at this this breakdown further, it says that nearly half of Americans, 45%, think that democracy isn't functioning properly. 38%, it's somewhat working. Well, what's happening here? Why do you believe that people are losing faith in democracy? I think, you know, what would be interesting is to dig into those figures. And I think there's, what's fascinating is that there's probably a lot of Democrats who feel this way, having just gone through the four years of the Trump presidency. But I imagine there's also increasing numbers of Republicans who feel this way as well, looking at the Democrats in office. And so this is, in a way, uh, a marker of extreme polarization. I think So that's one big part of the story, that each side doesn't trust the other side views the other side as a basic threat to our democracy. And so when the other side gets in power, they think that democracy is not working well. So so that's one big part of the story is polarization. I think a second big part of the story has to do with the effectiveness of of democracy and effectiveness of government in addressing basic challenges, social order, uh, climate change, COVID, and these sorts of things. And if if, uh, government doesn't deliver to its citizens, then citizens begin to question, is this really the best form of government? When you talk about the partisan divide, I mean, you you don't need a polling to let you know just how divided this country is. When we looked at the polling split, 96% of Democrats say that President Joe Biden respects institutions compared to only 42% of Republicans. How did we get to this point of being so politically divided? Well, it's been a long time coming uh, at 30, 40 years, I would say. Um, but and it does mark this extreme polarization. And so, one the, the word polarization has lots of different meanings when political scientists use it. But the, I think one way of using it that captures exactly what you're asking about is when political rivals and political opponents don't regard each other simply as political rivals, but regard each other as existential enemies. Um, and you know, it's one thing to disagree over taxes. You know, should they be sixty percent, forty percent? Uh, and you may have strongly held views on this. And in fact, a democracy thrives when there's disagreement. We need disagreement and heated disagreement in order for democracy to to thrive. But when political rivals begin to regard each other as existential threats, where they'll go to extreme measures to prevent the other side from winning, then a democracy is in trouble. And I think that that's where we are today. And the question of how we ended up here, you know, there's a lot of lot of factors at work. But my sense is that one of the driving forces of this is a deep transformation that's taken place over the last 30, 40 years in the, the societal makeup 
of our country. And in particular, the, the massive realignment of the vote in the U.S. South. I mean, essentially back in the, before the 1960s, you had a solid Southern Democratic Party. And as African-Americans were enfranchised in the U.S. South, you had a big transformation where African-Americans basically became Democrats by and large. Uh, white Southerners became Republican. And you had this massive realignment where you now have these two high, very different camps. On the one side, you have the Democratic Party, which is ethnically incredibly diverse, and the Republican Party, which is overwhelmingly white, 90% white in, in recent elections. And so when you have two groups that look so different culturally, ethnically, uh, this is fuel for the kind of polarization and political hatred that we see today. So I, so I think this kind of social transformation, which I uh, think is a great thing for our country, is an incredible opportunity. We have the potential to be the world's first truly multiracial democracy, also has this kind of polarizing reaction. And so I think that's what we're witnessing. So do you think that as more people see what they're calling the browning of America, uh, the rise of people of color and other ethnicities, do you think that is contributing to the divide in America, people who might not agree necessarily and want it to be more of a homogenous country? Yes, I think that's driving a lot of what's happening. I mean, there's other factors at work exacerbating this, but I think that's one of the prime movers of what we're witnessing. And so when a group loses its power and its status, it inevitably fights back against this. And I think there are a lot of white Americans who feel like their society they grew up in is being taken away from them. You know, it, it, in the 1950s, 19, early through the 1960s, you know, that all presidents were white men, all, all governors were white men, news broadcasters were white men, university presidents were white men. And, you know, this is no longer the case. And so this transformation, I think, is, is deeply threatening. And stat, these kind of status threats are deeply threatening. And so I think that's a big part of the story. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on, but that's, I think, a big part of the, the dr most important driving force behind this. Daniel, your book, How Democracies Die, came out in 2018. I want to read a passage from it. You write here, democracies may die at the hands not of generals, but of elected leaders, presidents, or prime ministers who subvert the very process that brought them to power. Some of these leaders dismantle democracy quickly, as Hitler did in the wake of the 1933 Reichstag fire in Germany. More often, though, democracies erode slowly in barely visible steps. Can you tell me a little bit about how democracies erode slowly and what are the barely visible steps? Looking around the world, what one often sees is that politicians get elected. They have democratic credentials because they've been elected. And so when you see the politician now in power beginning to do things, firing big elements of the bureaucracy or imposing retirement ages or changing election rules, they often do this legally because the world now is watching in this era in which we live, democracy is sort of often the only game in town. And so politicians are fo follow the rule of law, but in the process, they often can entrench themselves in power in these not entirely visible ways. So um, somebody like Hugo Chavez, 10 years into his presidency, there was a survey done in Venezuela in which a majority of Venezuelans said they lived in a democracy still. And so it's very hard to see this. And there's no, the constitution continues to operate, the parliament continues to meet. Uh, there are no tanks in the streets for the most part. And so all of the kind of indicators that we have in our mind, having grown up in the Cold War, where usually democracies died in military coups, none of those indicators are there. And so we don't see it happening. But you know what often is happening beneath the surface, again, often legally, and that's what's often so frightening about it, they entrench themselves in power and tilt the playing field so that it becomes harder and harder to dislodge them from office. 
a clear example of this that's gotten a lot of attention is uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who was originally elected with a pretty strong mandate, but then once in power during the 2010s, changed the electoral rules to make it impossible to vote them out of office, uh, fire, put, imposed a new retirement age for judges so that all the judges had to retire and he then appointed all the judges, changed the commissions that oversaw media so that it had his friends by the, the most important media stations. And so then it became harder and harder to dislodge him from power. Something similar, I would argue, was attempted in the United States over the last four years. By and large, it failed. And I think one big reason it failed is that America's democratic opposition is, was much stronger. I mean, the Democratic Party is well-financed, well-organized. And so the Democrats retook the House of Representatives in 2018 and won the presidency in 2020. And so in some sense, that's a sign that our democracy is better off, I would argue, than a lot of countries around the world. But the threat has not gone away. And the, the thing that makes countries vulnerable to this kind of incremental democratic death is polarization and the rise of a political party that doesn't accept the basic rules of the game. And we still have that basic problem with us. Well, we've got to take a quick break and we'll be back with author Daniel Ziblatt on the Recount Daily Pod. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. We're here with Harvard professor and political scientist Daniel Ziblatt. Do you believe that the January 6th attack on the Capitol will have a lasting impact on our democracy? Yes, I think it was a, a major historical moment that we'll look back on uh, that'll be in American high school kids' textbooks as a major moment in American history where a sitting president basically did not accept the results of an election and there was an effort to subvert the counting of the ballots. And so whatever one thinks of these, of the seriousness of these figures who were assaulting the Congress, this is what was happening. This is a major threat to the basic transition of power, which is a key pillar of democracy. You know, that the idea that you have use elections and there's this uncertainty over who's going to win is at the heart of democracy. And if that's challenged, which is what was attempted in, on January 6th, then a democracy is really in, in question. One of the th ways I often think about that day, though, of January 6th is that I remember waking up on January 6th, and this was the night before, if you think back to that, was when you had these, the Georgia Senate runoff, where you had an African-American and young Jewish-American Senate candidate both win in uh, Georgia, a pretty conservative state. And so that was this remarkable remarkable moment, a uh, kind of indicator in the January 5th of the promise of multiracial democracy. Fast forward 24 hours and you see this reaction, and not directly to the Georgia election, but these two events, I think January 5th, January 6th, typify these two strands in American politics. And so I think it's, it was a major moment and, it, and it's a kind of indicator of where we are as a democracy. In your book, you mentioned that democratic backsliding today begins at the ballot box. We've seen now 
a movement of 100 scholars calling for reform, saying America's democracy is in danger because there are these state-led changes to election laws. What do you believe? Is our nation backsliding when it comes to democracy? Well, we certainly face that risk. Um, you know, and I think the test will really be in 2022, 2024. There's efforts underway, certainly, to uh, weaken our democracy. Um, so in particular, the U.S. has this unique kind of system in which um, election administration takes place at the level of states. And so all of the action takes place at the level of states, you know, state legislatures, state governors, revamping election rules. And so in some ways, although we're getting, it's getting a lot of attention, it falls a little bit out of the headlines. This isn't taking place at the national level. Democratic Party's in, in charge of the, the national government. But now at the level of U.S. states, where Republicans in many states are clearly fearful of what would happen if you had the same kind of voter turnout as you had in uh, 2020, are trying to come up with ways, they argue, of cleaning up elections. And whether you, know, you take them at their word or not, what's clear is that this will reduce voter turnout. Anything that vote, reduces voter turnout of eligible and legitimate voters is a problem for democracy. But I think even a more significant risk is what people have been calling election subversion, which is the effort to alter the process of counting of ballots and the certifying of elections and the politicizing of that and taking it out of the hands of county commissions, bipartisan county commissions, and putting it in the hands of state legislatures. And this is happening in Republican-led states with the idea that a Republican uh, state legislature can look at the results in, the, let's say, the 2024 presidential election, if it's a very close election in, let's say, Arizona or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, and a Republican state legislature can say, no, we don't think this election was fair. We're kind of providing the, the justification for that now. I think we're watching it right in front of us. And what could very well happen is what hap what was attempted in 2020 could happen in much more effectively in 2024, and an election could be stolen. Why do you feel so strongly that a U.S. election could be stolen in the coming years? There's an effort to legally steal elections, to so change the law in such a way that if somebody doesn't quite sign the right box to kind of follow the letter of the law so extremely that there's an effort to suppress the vote. And so there's a way in which you can um, use the letter of the law to undermine the spirit of the law. This is what in our book we call constitutional hardball. This is rampant in every democracy in, in trouble. And I think we could sort of think of what's happening as a form of electoral constitutional hardball, where there's efforts to kind of create these very strict laws that can be used to suppress the vote. Now, just one, one final thing I would say on this, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, shouldn't we have clean elections? Shouldn't we have voter IDs? Is this really so outrageous to demand this? And, you know, there's a point to that. I mean, most countries around the world do have voter IDs. You know, I'm sitting talking to you right now in Germany where there's a voter ID. When you turn 18, you get sent an identification card and that's your voter ID. Everybody in the country has it. And, you know, I think in principle, that would be a good thing. And one thought I've often had is if Republicans are worried about voter IDs, let's have a nationally issued voter ID. My sense is they would probably resist this. And so I, I wonder how genuine is the, the concern. Often, again, things that have the veneer of legality can be used. One has to look at what are the effects of the laws. And if it reduces, it makes it more difficult for people to vote who ought to have the right to vote, then this is an anti-democratic measure. Daniel, our democracy has survived for 245 years. Why do you believe that American democracy is dying? Well, two things. One, we haven't been a democracy for that long. I, th I would say we've been a democracy since the mid-1960s. African-Americans in the U.S. South didn't have the right to vote. 
until 1965. You know, we did have a civil war in the 19th century, so, we're, so our democracy is not that. Old. We're, we're con- we've had the same constitution through that period, and that's something to be proud of, certainly. But we've been an incomplete democracy throughout, and our democracy requires constant updating. Our constitution requires constant updating. I mean, throughout our history, we've updated our constitution, reformed our constitution. There's been constitutional amendments. That's the first point. The second point is I'm, I'm not sure that our democracy is dying. I, th- I mean, at some level, I, I think there's a lot of promise. We face a, an incredibly promising situation. I mean, I think majorities of Americans support a more inclusive society. Th- that we do face this threat, though, that our democracy is faltering. People are not satisfied with how our democracy is operating. And so I think we're at this real test point, and there's this sort of battle taking place that we're living through. And so that's, I think, where we are. Daniel, before you go, can we save democracy or do you believe it's too late? I think we can save our democracy. I mean, I, as I mentioned before, there's a long history in the United States of reforming our democracy. The beginning of the 20th century, what's often called the progressive era, it was a period of extreme inequality, the Gilded Age, a period of high polarization. President Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson was not a great reformer sort of naturally, but there was a big movement, a progressive movement, which pushed for reform. And some of the reforms that were implemented were, were world-changing, with female enfranchisement the direct election of U.S. senators. During this period, not a constitutional change, but the introduction of party primaries, a whole series of reforms in the late 19th century, early 20th century that transformed our democracy in ways that were perceived at the time as being radical. We look back now and think these are commonsensical. Of course, we have directly elected senators. And so that history gives me hope because what it suggests is that under pressure, we can reform our democracy. You know, and the U.S. had a pretty good 20th century, and it was no no small part due to the fact that we reformed our institutions. And I think we are confronting a similar moment now. And if you look around the world, other countries have reformed their institutions, and these kinds of legacy institutions, pre-democratic legacy institutions, have been abandoned in a lot of democracies around the world. And I think it's time for, for us to do the same thing. You know, on the one hand, we need to both be alert to the risk, but not panic. And by that, I mean recognize that there are real strengths uh, and sources of resilience in our democracy. We need to empower those. I trust the American people. I mean, and I think it's really a matter that our institutions don't reflect what the American people want. In that sense, I think at the end of the day, although there's certainly periods where I'm I'm quite pessimistic, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about American democracy. Daniel Ziblatt, Harvard professor, political scientist, and co-author of the best-selling book, How Democracies Die. Daniel, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And now to our look ahead. Here's what else we're watching in the news today. President Joe Biden will receive a briefing from the COVID-19 response team. He'll then update the public on where the U.S. stands in combating the pandemic, as well as vaccination efforts. The White House failed to reach Biden's July 4th deadline to get 70% of the country vaccinated. Currently, 64% of the U.S. population, ages 12 and up, have at least one dose. Tropical Storm Elsa is likely to hit the lower Florida Keys today, bringing two to five inches of rain along with possible storm surge and sustained winds of 50 miles per hour. The storm could possibly make landfall on Wednesday in northern Florida before continuing on to the southeastern seaboard. And as a sign of things returning to normal, after 13 months, the 74th Cannes Film Festival opens up with the sci-fi musical Annette, starring Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard. Masks and a proof of negative COVID test will be required at all festival events, and moviegoers will be allowed to sit next to each other. This will be the first major film festival that will not have a virtual element to it. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. This is a Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from Recount and iHeartRadio. 
Our thanks to Daniel Ziblatt for joining us today. And if you like this episode, please subscribe to the Recount Daily Pod and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Rena Ninen. Alexis Ramdow and Corey Wara engineered and produced this podcast. Ariella Martin is also a producer. Fonda Mwangi did the research. And our executive producer is Laura Beatty. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.